Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at thedistrict.church. Today? Good. I feel like I'm at one of those uh, theme parks where there's like a splash zone and no one wants to sit there. And so like, I don't know, I know I spit sometimes, but you know, I guess everyone's safe this morning. Uh, I don't know, maybe I'll come down and splash a couple. Um, but anyways, good morning, everyone. Uh, Ro- uh, Romans, James, turn your Bibles to the book of James. I'm already off the rails this morning. Uh, James, we're in uh, week four of our series uh, through the book of James, and we're going to be looking at three verses today, James 1, 13 through 15, James 1, 13 through 15. And so if you're turning to it on a device, uh, we tend to use the ESV version of the Bible, and so... Uh, We don't usually make a big deal about what versions we use or whatnot, but if you're always wondering the reason why we read from the ESV, uh, there are different types of translations, different types of versions. Uh, We tend to like ESV and the NASB because they are literal translations. What we mean by that, they are word-for-word translations. So sometimes when you're translating Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic, it can be hard to translate it straight into English. But this is the uh, theologians and scholars' way of trying to get as close as possible to an original word-for-word translation. And so scripture or Bibles like ESV and NASB are those types of translations, where others like NIV or NLT are what they refer to as thought-for-thought or phrase-for-phrase translations. So they're kind of taking uh, a chunk and paraphrasing it in a way and then translating it into English so that it's a little bit readable for us or better readable for us. And so we don't dislike those. We think those are great if you're just wanting to read through chapters of the Bible um, to get the main ideas of, of what's going on there, if you're reading it for devotional purposes. But when it comes to just studying the scriptures and diving into what they are, this is why we like ESV, specifically because, again, it's a word-for-word translation, trying to get as close to the original as possible. So I say all that because I know a lot of us use devices and uh, sometimes wonder, what is he reading from? So that's what we read from. James 1, 13 through 15. And one of the things we're going to be looking at today is this idea of trials and how trials in some ways are different than temptations, but are still considered a trial. And so as we're in chapter 1 right now, what we've been looking at over the last few weeks is this idea of trials and trials of various kinds. And last week specifically, we looked at the trials of money and possessions and wealth and whether or not we are putting our our hope there, putting our value there, putting our identity there, whether or not we have money and wealth and possessions or we don't have money, wealth and possessions. On both sides of the coin, the main idea was making sure that we find our identity, value and wealth in the one true wealth, which is Jesus Christ, um, him and him alone. And so that's the constant trial that we find ourselves facing is whether we have it or don't have it. We don't pursue that for satisfaction. We only pursue Christ and all the things that are considered his righteousness. And then all those other things will be added to us. And so we don't have to worry, kind of like the birds of the air. We don't have to worry whether or not we will have or not have when it comes to what God provides for us. We trust that he will. But we first and foremost pursue Jesus. 
in all things for our identity, for our value, for our worth. And that's what we looked at last week. And that's a trial that we all, I believe, face on a daily, weekly basis. And so today it's going to move a little bit into temptation and how we process temptation, how we think about temptation, where does it come from, um, and how are we to handle it and deal with it when it arises. So starting in verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So this is the word of the Lord for us this morning. And uh, what I've got for you is we've got three truths about temptation that James has for us this morning. And the first truth is this. Temptations will come. All right, temptations will come. And that might sound very elementary, might sound very easy, might sound very obvious, but it is true. We need to recognize and understand that temptations will come. It says, let no one say when he is tempted. It's not if temptations, but when temptations come. It's kind of like winter in Indiana, right? Like it's not if it's going to come, it's when it's going to come like it's and I love the fall all right I love the fall I I love the seasons but specifically I love the fall I love the crispness of the air I love the smell of burning leaves I was actually back in Tennessee uh, just for a couple of days this past week which is where I'm from if you didn't know repping the shirt despise the uh, or despite my wife's wisdom this morning that I did not listen to um I love fall, all right, and, and, and even driving through my hometown, it's, it's a tobacco town, and so they farm tobacco, and so they have these tobacco barns that burn, and, and it just smell the tobacco. If you don't know, you don't know, all right, I get that, but if you have smelled it before, then you know there's nothing greater in the world than the smell of a tobacco burning barn. All right, it's fantastic. I, but, but it reminds me of fall. It reminds me of the season. I love chili. I love chili cook-offs. I, I love all things fall. But there's also those types of people that are like, fall is just giving way to winter. And it's going to be six months of despair. And, and I'm kind of on the side of like, just let us enjoy it for the time being, knowing that winter is coming. All right? And it is going to be six months of the sun going into hibernation and and all of those things. And, and we just have to endure it. But that's kind of what James is saying here. Is, is, it's not whether or not it's coming. It's the fact that it is coming and you need to prepare for it. You need to prepare for it. Winter is coming. Temptations will come. And so one of the first questions we want to answer is, what are some of the things that we misunderstand about temptations? What does the Bible have to say about Temptation. The first one is that temptations aren't just for weak Christians. I think this is a misunderstanding that we have is that temptations happen to weak Christians. Like we have this thought in our minds that if you're strong and mature in your faith, that you're never going to experience temptations. And we just don't see that as evidenced in the Bible or in the scriptures anywhere. Temptation happens for all Christians regardless of maturity. And I would even say that the more mature you grow in your faith, that the temptations also grow and that they increase. 
Because again, as we'll see here in a moment, not only are temptations things that come from your flesh, from your sinful desires, but temptations are also coming from the enemy in order to uh, distract you from the growth that you're having, from the focus of having Jesus, again, as your greatest desire and affection. So temptations happen to all of us. Number two, one of the things we misunderstand about temptation is that it's a sin. Some people think temptation itself is a sin, that being tempted is a sin. In fact, being tempted is not a sin. It's not a sin to be tempted. Hebrews 4.15 tells us that Jesus himself was tempted just like us in every aspect. Just like us in every aspect. So everything that we face when it comes to temptation, he was tempted in. However, he was tempted without sin was tempted but without sin. So yes, there is a qualitative difference. If it doesn't say Jesus was without sin, so he was never tempted, we know that Jesus was tempted, and therefore being tempted in and of itself is not a sin. All right, if Jesus can be tempted, we can be tempted, and yet without sin. Number three, temptations are not the same things as testings. We know that from the very first part of the book of James, it says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So this is a type of testing that does come from the Lord. There is a type of testing that God does in His will give us in order to test our faith, in order to give us opportunities to exercise the faith that He's given to us in order to trust Him in those moments and to endure and to remain steadfast so that it produces this perseverance that ultimately produces joy in us where we receive that crown of life. These are the types of testings that God gives to us in order to grow our faith, in order to produce steadfastness in us. However, those testings are different than temptations. Testings are different than temptations, and you'll see why here in a moment. And number four, temptations can come in different intensities. And you've probably experienced that in your own life. We can be very aware of some of the things that tempt us and are tempting us. Or on the flip of that, we can be dangerously oblivious about those things that pose a threat and a temptation to us. I heard a saying when I was younger, and I, I don't remember who said it, but an unguarded strength is a double weakness. And so what we know is that pride can kind of come into these things that tempt our desires if we think that we are excluded from being tempted by them. Those who think, because I'm mature, I can't be tempted in this way, or I'm not being tempted in this way. Sometimes that idea of pride can oftentimes lead us into more weakness. The bottom line is that we should expect temptations and they are going to come. So the question we want to ask now is, where does God come into our temptation? Where does God come into our temptation? Where, where does He fit into these temptations that we experience? Does He just send us temptations in order to try to trip us up? Is that the kind of God that we are talking about when we face Temptations? Well, no. James is actually telling us that temptations never come from God. Temptations never come from God, which is my second major point. It says here in verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, so temptations are going to come when he is tempted. Let them say, I am 
being tempted by God? No, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and He Himself tempts no one. So what James is telling us here is to guard against foolish reasoning when you find yourself being tempted. Guard yourself against foolish reasoning when you're being tempted. In other words, don't even think, don't ever dare say what can never be true about God. What can never be true about God. Whatever trial you face in your life or in my life, one of our, tempt- one of our temptations is to misinterpret God's character in the midst of it. To misinterpret God's character in the midst of it. Or to blame God for a decision that we make or a consequence that we feel God should have prevented us from facing. See, because our sin nature causes us to blame shift. Our sin nature causes us to blame shift. It causes us to not take responsibility for our actions. Remember Adam and Eve and the first thing Adam said after he had eaten the, taken the bite of the fruit? What was the first thing Adam said out of the gate? When God came in and asked him, what would you do? He didn't say, well, you know what? I just really messed up and I take full responsibility and my actions were wrong. I didn't trust you and I ate. That's not what he did. What he did was, it was that woman that you gave me. All right, he's, he's not only blaming the woman, but again, misinterpreting God on this, he's also blaming God. It's the woman that you, in your infinite wisdom and in your infinite knowledge, you thought was a good idea to give me. Again, blame shifting. This is what sin causes us to do. All right, and it's not just men. What did, what did Eve do? When he questioned Eve, did Eve take responsibility? No, it was the serpent. The devil made me do it. I mean, how many times when we face temptations, when we, when we exercise our temptations and we then choose to sin, we give way to sin, we conceive and give birth to sin, devil made me do it. Devil made me do it. It'd be a lot easier if I just didn't have the enemy there always at my beck and mind telling me this is going to be good, this is going to be fun, this is going to be enjoyable, just go ahead and do it. So what James is doing is he is reminding these Jewish Christians to not think wrongly of God. God can not only tempt us with evil, but he's also our stronghold when temptations arise. He presents us with the road back to himself every single time. So not only does God never tempt, but he also is never tempted to, listen to this, abandon us when we are tempted. Like God's never tempted to abandon us when we are being tempted. How comforting is that for us when we're tempted to click on that website? How comforting it is when you're tempted to blurt out something unmentionable? When you're tempted to gaze too long at something that is not yours to gaze on? When you're tempted to post something unkind? When you're tempted to give up and give in because you feel weak or you feel like you are in despair. Like in those moments, God is not tempted to give up on you. God is not tempted to leave you. God is not tempted to go away. He cannot be tempted. He is himself and he remains faithful. He remains steadfast. And he's going to finish and complete the good work that he has started in you. 
in these moments of temptations, when we are tempted to wander and stray and go away from God, God is actively in pursuit of us. Not only actively in pursuit of us, but actively providing for us a way out. What we know about God here from James is that He has not gone MIA in those moments. He's provided us with a way of escape. How do we know that? Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. In other words, anything you are tempted by, you're not the first person in the world to be tempted by it. All right, so we, we should, there should never be a moment where we say what I'm experiencing right now, no one else has ever felt this before. No one else has ever gone through this before. No one can relate to what I'm dealing with right now. But instead he says, God is faithful and will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. He's faithful and will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Now that is not saying that you are to then look within yourself and just figure out a way in your own ability to beat the temptation. All right, we're sinners. What do sinners do? Sinners sin. We're sinners. According to the ability of our sinful state, we're going to sin. What he's saying is don't try to tap into a way of like an algorithm code of how, how can I beat my sin. What he's saying there is the way that he is providing out, the ability that he's tapping into is Jesus Christ who was tempted in every way that we were, yet without sin, if you are in Christ and Christ is in you, tap into that ability that Jesus has to say no to sin and yes to God. To say no to sin and yes to worship. It's in that moment when we, when we are living our lives, walking through our day, and we're presented with that opportunity where I either have a choice. I'm, either, I'm tempted to either fall into sin or to choose the path of righteousness and worship God in whatever the situation is, I can't muster up the strength in my flesh to choose righteousness. In that moment, I have to live by faith in Jesus Christ, in His ability, His strength, His perfection, His righteousness to be able to choose the path of righteousness, to be able to choose what is right in that moment. And if I don't live by faith, if I don't choose Jesus in that moment, if I don't trust in him in that moment, my flesh is going to fall into sin every single time. Every single time. This is why 2 Timothy 2.13 even says this, if we are faithless, which we are, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. It's impossible for us to be tempted by God with evil because there's no evil in God to tempt us with. Nor is He drawn or tempted by evil to tempt us with. So, temptations will come, but temptations never come from God. Where do they come from then? Here's my third point. Temptations come from disordered desires. Testings come from the Lord. Temptations come from our disordered desires desires, our disordered desires. Kent Hughes, a theologian, says this, temptations would not be tempting 
if it were not for our own evil desires. And Paul reminded Timothy in 1 Timothy 6, 9, this is what he says to him, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. So here's the point. Before we have temptation problems, we have desire problems. Before we ever have temptation problems, we have desire problems, which is what James sort of soberly describes for us as he kind of walks through this life cycle of sin in verse 14, which is basically our disordered desires when conceived give birth to sin, and then sin grows into death. So temptation comes as a result of as a result from being lured and enticed, lured and enticed by our own sinful desires. Our own sinful desires. It's kind of like if you have ever gone fishing, right? Like it's it's kind of like the fish that is lured into your bait. Lured into your bait. There's only one outcome for that fish if it latches onto that bait, right? Like for that fish, it's not going to be latching on in order to become a pet or a cuddle partner for you. Like, it's not going to be caught and then you're going to throw fetch with them like out in the yard. Like, that's not kind of what's happening there. there there's only one outcome usually for the fish that's caught by the bait. And that's death for them and dinner for you. And this is what's happening with us and our sinful desires is that we're being lured and enticed and if we take the bait, there's only one outcome. Death. Despair. Destruction. Being completely robbed of satisfaction. No joy, no happiness. James is helping us understand that temptations come from these disordered desires. And they're disordered desires that can only be reordered by the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. And that's a process that's, that begins by taking responsibility for our actions and our sin. Sam Alberry, a pastor out in England, writes this, It is self-deception that makes us so quick to blame. It's not my fault. How many times have your kids said that when you've caught them red-handed, right? hand in the cookie jar. It's not my fault. I didn't do it. I didn't smack them or hit them. But yet we saw it. That's how we want to do it. It kind of goes back to that idea of blame shifting. The first step to being able to reorder our desires is taking responsibility for our actions, for our sins, to be able to own up to those things and confess them to the Lord, confess them to God. This presents us with a further problem, which is this. To resist temptation but do nothing in the way of reordering our desires is to be self-deceived by them over and over again. It's kind of like the idea of just trying to figure out behavioral modification. All right, if I keep giving over to sin, let me just eliminate the avenues that are tempting me to get there. So, for example, if you have a porn addiction... Let me put on my computer covenant eyes so that anytime I search something, 
it gets sent to an email or, or, or to a friend of mine to be able to watch whatever it is that I'm looking at. So now I'm trying to modify my behavior by just putting in those boundaries. Now, are those things wrong? Absolutely not. I think they're good. I think it's good to have checks and balances. But there's also a root to the desire for those types of things. And if you don't ever get to the root and cut it out or kill it, then you're never really dealing with the temptation. You're never really dealing with that desire that you have. It's kind of like, how many of you have, well, I think you should, how many of you have yards? <laughs> All right. How many of you have weeds in your yard? All right. Get them hands up, Greg. I've, I've seen them. And so I just got to call it out because his yard was, he actually really doesn't even have a yard right now. But it looks great when you mow it for about a day. And then weeds grow faster than grass does, all right, if you weren't aware. It's true. After a few days, those weeds start to sprout again. They start to come up, and it starts to look rough again. This is what behavioral modification is. If we don't ever get to the root of the issue, we're never actually getting rid of the issue. We're never getting rid of the sin. We're never taking responsibility for it. So what's the answer then? Well, the answer is this. To see Jesus is so much better. To see Jesus is so much better. You want to begin to reorder, take responsibility for your sin, and begin to see Jesus is so much better than whatever it is that you're tempted with. And that might sound very simple, but that is a very theological statement. To see Jesus as so much better. So much more beautiful, so much more desirable than everything else. It's like that old hymn goes, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face. And the things of the earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. This is how our disordered desires become not only weaker for the things that weaken us, but stronger for the one who strengthens us. I love how C.S. Lewis talks about this. He has this famous quote. Maybe you've heard of it. He says this, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what it is or meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. And then he says this, we are too far easily pleased. Far too easily pleased. Having a desire that is in disorder, that we need to be reordered. It happens a lot with food. I, I like to talk about food because I like food. And if you were to put in front of me a quarter pounder or an Angus burger, I'm not even going to be tempted by the quarter pounder. Because I know how much better the Angus burger is in front of me. Now, are there going to be times that I eat a quarter pounder? Sure. Absolutely. But it's usually when it's a quick, fast option. And I don't have the other option right in front of me. But this is how we kind of process decisions on a daily basis. When tempted, 
We're America. We're in a fast food culture. All right? I kind of <laughs> joked about this last night. Like, I made, I made cake in a mug last night and, like, baked, like, mixed it, microwaved it, and ate it within five minutes. Like, that's the most American thing I've done in the last few days. But that's how we process our, our decision-making, is what can I do right now that's going to be quick and easy? And that might be somewhat enjoyable, but is not long-lasting and satisfying. And that's the issue that we face on a daily basis, that when we give in to our temptations, we're choosing the quarter pounder over the Angus burger every single time. We're choosing a lesser thing rather than Jesus every single time. And unfortunately, again, as C.S. Lewis is saying here, it's not that God is saying that our desires are too strong for this thing over here. He's saying that our desires are actually just too weak. We don't desire enough. We don't desire more. And so we're half-hearted creatures now. Because we don't know what it's like to experience a holiday at the sea. We don't know what it's like to choose Jesus over whatever this sin is that we're giving ourselves over to. And that's what it is for those of us who have been saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. We now have a person, not an object and not a thing, that is able to satisfy the desire That is what we truly want in life. He's able to satisfy this desire, which is to be known and to be loved and to be forgiven and to be cared for, to be affirmed, to be accepted. That's what we're really longing for. That's what we're really desiring for. Everyone, everyone who's created is created as that, as their default posture is to long for something that satisfies. And that's why everyone is giving themselves over to whatever it is that they think will satisfy them. And if you don't know Jesus, then all you're going to do is put all your eggs in the basket of career, or family, or children, or money, wealth, and possessions, or fame, or whatever it is. And those things never never satisfy. They were never designed to bear the weight of your worship of them. The only one who is able to carry the weight of our worship is Jesus Christ Himself. That's it. Everything else falls and crumbles under the weight of our worship. Like if you're married in this room, and you think your wife or your your husband is going to satisfy you, they're going to be crushed under the weight of you trying to get satisfaction out of them. Crushed. You want to crush your children? Try Try to get them to really earn the fact that you're proud of them. Career? When is enough? When is enough? You'll never get it. I mean, that's the lie that we believe over and over and over, especially in a westernized culture, is what you need is more of what you already have. 
What you need is more of what you already have. Because we don't know Jesus. We've not tasted of complete satisfaction. Because it only comes in Jesus. So the implications of these three short verses for us this morning are that we can overcome temptation because of Jesus. We can overcome temptation because of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus overcame temptation for us on the cross. And because Jesus can now become our object of our desires once we are His. That's the only way that we can overcome temptation. Is by seeing Jesus and having Him reorder our disordered desires. I mean, that's the essence of every testimony, right? Every testimony that we have in this room is, I was after this thing that did not satisfy me, and then I met Jesus. Jesus changed my life, and He's greater than anything else that I ever experienced before, and so I'm team Jesus now. I'm all about Jesus. I love Jesus. He forgave me of all the things that I was striving after that never worked because I was sinning against Him. I was worshiping creation rather than creator. He forgave me of those things. Now he accepts me because he gave me his righteousness. Now I am known and I am affirmed and I am accepted by God alone because of Jesus Christ who now lives in me. And because of those disordered desires that I was born with as a sinner, he is now reordering those desires to desire him and not these things over here. And we see this all throughout Scripture. Just listen to this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. This is what it says. And you, you, all of us, you, were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Some sobering verses there in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Apart from Christ, that's who you are. By nature, children of wrath. Carrying out the passions and desires of your flesh you got one option sin sin perversion whatever it is money pervert it sex pervert it entertainment pervert it family pervert it that's the only option for those who are dead in their trespasses and sins and this might be the two greatest words in scripture verse four but God. He did not leave us there. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even as we are dead in our trespasses and sins, even as we are by nature children of wrath, of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. Together with Christ. Made us alive. Giving us a new heart. 
giving us new desires, giving us new life to walk in Him. By grace, a gift, free gift, by grace you have been saved and raised up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Like, do you see what's going on there? Like, that is what God is doing with the advancement of the gospel, the good news that this is the work of Jesus Christ in our day and age, in our lives. This is what He is doing. Our disordered desires can become reordered by Christ as our hearts are made alive and become deeply ingrained with His grace and mercy. And we are blind to those things that are actually luring and enticing us. And at times we just don't see it. Hebrews 2.18 gives us this hope. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Again, that's what we are. Not only is he reordering us, not only is he presenting us with himself, but in those moments of temptation, we are not alone. He is there to help us. Not only that, Paul then kind of just blows it out of the water as he says this in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh which is being tempted day and day and day and day. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. Who, by the way, didn't come just to tweak with my desires. He had a heart behind it. He had a desire behind it. Which is because He loved me and He gave Himself for me. Man, not He doesn't just save you and forgive you, and say, good luck. I hope you stick it out. I hope whenever you're faced with temptations on a daily basis, I I hope you choose me rather than sin. No, he says, I'm taking those disordered desires that are in you, and I'm crucifying them to the cross. I'm putting them to death. And then I'm going to come and I'm going to invade your space. I'm going to come and take up residence in your heart and in your mind. And I'm going to live through you. So that by faith in me, you're able to say yes to worship and no to sin. Every single time. Every single time you meet sin. Like, I think that is our biggest downfall is not believing that we're able to say yes to worship and no to sin. I think that's our biggest downfall. The biggest reason why Christians continue to just sin is because of a lack of faith and trust in the one who lives within us and is living in us and is living through us and is reordering us by His grace and His goodness and His mercy and His love, to be able in that moment to allow us to see and believe 
and own it that this is better than this over here. Have stronger desires, not weaker desires. Say yes to what is beautiful and good and gracious and righteous because it is going to be way more satisfying for you than this thing over here. You're able because of Jesus Christ in you. Choose it. This is what Paul is saying. All those desires of the flesh, they are not you anymore. They're not you anymore. Peter tells us by his wounds, by Jesus' wounds, our disordered desires are being healed and made new and made alive to the desires of Christ and the desires of righteousness and the desires of the kingdom. Kent Hughes again tells us this. This is the glory of the gospel. It is breaking the power of sin and halts its invisible and inevitable train. That's what's happening for us. The power of the gospel is stopping the train of sin in our lives and derailing it so that we are now moving down the tracks of righteousness. Untrained Jesus, and He is tooting His horn loud and proud in our lives. By faith, we're riding. We're riding along as He is living through us every single day. This is all of ours in Jesus. Temptations will come, but temptations will never come from God. That is not His character. They come from our disordered desires that Jesus is slowly but surely reordering because of His love and His grace for us. So what do you do? You just lean into that. You lean into it. You press into that. You take responsibility for your actions by going before the throne of grace and saying, Jesus, change those desires. Draw me back to you. Give me an overwhelming desire for you so that these things that have been luring and enticing me, and they lose their power because we've been given the power from on high. We've been given Jesus. And as Paul says, I count all those things as rubbish just by knowing the surpassing greatness of Jesus Christ alone. Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. And maybe that's just the, the one phrase you just say over and over and over. Today, you're going to be tempted. And when you're tempted, Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. Jesus, help me right now. Help me right now. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at